Welcome to the Work Hard, Play Hard podcast. My name is Rob Murgatroyd, and I'm a former doctor turned lifestyle entrepreneur. Each week, I interview some of the best minds on the planet on the science of achievement and the art of fulfillment. Come take this journey with me. Excuses are over. It's time to live. It's who you are. The strategies, the tactics, they can always be learned. But are you operating from a perspective that says, my goal right here is to bring value? When you think about it, selling is nothing more than discovering what the other person needs, wants, and desires, and helping them to get it. We'd like to think we're logical, and to a certain extent we are, but we're pretty emotion-based. We make major decisions based on emotion, and we rationalize, which if you break up the word rationalize, it simply means we tell ourselves rational lies. Lie, lie, lie. What's up, everybody? This is Rob Murgatroyd, and welcome to another episode of the Work Hard, Play Hard show. Today's guest is Bob Berg, the author of The Go-Giver. I was introduced to Bob's work a few years ago when he came out with the book, The Go-Giver. And by introduced, I mean my wife, Kim, made me read it. She would not let up until I finished reading it, really. I mean, she just didn't stop. She was like, you must read this. And I'm really glad I did, because after reading it, I realized that I was more focused on me, 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 my goals, what I wanted, what I wanted to achieve, and honestly, much less on what the other person's needs were. And it occurred to me that I'm probably not the only one that's a little, let's say, self-centered and can probably use a dose of Bob's principles. And we started out talking about sales, and he's really, really good at it. And the reason I wanted to talk about sales is, let's face it, we're all in sales. Then we moved into a deep dive on his new book, The Go-Giver Influencer. In one way or another, we're all influencers on social media. Some of us are big influencers and some of us are smaller influencers. And I think there's a ton of application here to help you grow your personal brands. So in this conversation, we talked about everything from the eight words to say to move people to your side of an issue when you have no common ground. It's actually very, very simple and it's a really good strategy. I loved it. We also talked about how to listen with the back of your neck. It's a really cool strategy and he explains it in the interview. And we covered a giant mistake that he made with a title of one of his books and how he was able to turn it around. It's a great story. You can find him on the Facebook at Bob Berg. That's B-U-R-G. Be sure to take a screenshot of this episode, share it on the socials, and remember to tag me and Bob Berg and let us know what you thought of the show. So without further ado, please enjoy this conversation I had with Bob Berg. Bob, welcome to the show. Hey, Rob, it's always great to speak with you. Thank you for having me on. I am so excited. You know, I've been super pumped to do this interview with you because the impact that The Go-Giver has had on me personally and frankly in my family has been astonishing. And um, it is the most gifted book that Kim and I give to people. Wow, I take that as a great compliment. The two of you are a couple of my heroes. And I'll tell you, to to know that the two of you share the book with others is really a, a great compliment. Thank you. Ah, oh, thanks. So I thought what we would do is I'd like to start with a little bit of background about you 
And then we're going to move into some questions, really self-interested questions that I had about sales. And then I want to go into a few specifics about the book, and then we'll wrap up with rapid fire. So I think we can get through this within your book tour time. <laughs> you just do whatever you want, Rob. I'm, I'm just following your lead. Okay, sounds good. So I thought we would begin with a little history about you. If I did my research correctly, your dad was the manager at the Fifth Street Gym, the famous Fifth Street Gym in Miami, where... Muhammad Ali and Sugar Ray Leonard trained. Did you ever get a chance to meet any of them? Well, okay, so your mo- most of it is there, absolutely. It, back after World War II, and this is a few years after that, he was at the war- at the uh, Fifth Street gym, and he was just working out and actually recovering some, from some war injuries. And he ended up becoming really good friends with, with Chris and Angelo Dundee. They were the two brothers. And uh, Angelo, of course, is the most famous brother for having having trained uh, Ali and, and Leonard and so forth. And so he ended up being the manager of that gym. But it was before the days of Ali and Leonard. There was one time back in the, gosh, early 70s, maybe, yes, about 73, I think I was in ninth grade. Muhammad Ali was doing an exhibition in Boston. And I lived in a, a Western suburb of, of uh, Boston. and. Uh, because Ali was in town, Dundee came over, or, excuse me, Mr. Dundee came over for uh, for dinner one night. And so uh, that I was just, you know, in my glory. I mean, uh, Angelo Dundee, the trainer of, of Muhammad Ali, was actually at our dinner table. And it was great hearing dad and him talk about the old days of, of fighting and, and so forth and some of the memories. And oh, that, that was just, you, you just brought up a, a fantastic memory for me. You know, a lot of people listening, because I am getting up there in age two, a lot of people listening have no idea who we're talking about. And for I know. those that have oh. no idea, number one, <laughs> you piss me off. But number two, <laughs> do a little bit of Googling and find out who this man was. He was incredible. So, okay. You have sold, I think, over a million books now, and you have helped so many people grow. Are there any particular teachers that you can point to that have impacted your growth? Zig Ziglar is the first one that comes to mind. He was one. He and Tom Hopkins were the first two sales teachers, per se, that I I studied when I got into sales. And it was just such a thrill to get to to speak on stage with them at a certain point. In fact, what we used to, my business partner and I used to put on a, uh, hold an annual event and Zig came in to uh, to speak, and this was after he had had a, a a brain injury, unfortunately, a couple of years before he passed. And but I got to actually do my Zig Ziglar imitation in front of Zig uh, because we were actually awarding him the Go Giver of the Year award, and uh, which was a real thrill to do. And so I I did an imitation of Zig, uh, one of his famous riffs. Uh, but so that was fun. But yeah, I'd say Zig. And then, you know, I started to read all the books that you have on your bookshelf as well. And probably half the people listening have have bookshelves similar to ours. Right. And so you have the, you know, the, the Dale Carnegie's and the Napoleon Hills and the, the James Allen's and all these these amazing writers and teachers. And I just began studying those. And so you know, they, they all made impacts. But I, you know, Zig was Zig was pretty special. Zig was an incredible guy. It's amazing that he still, his company is still going. I mean, he's, the, the Zig Ziglar podcast is mm-hmm. still going. 
Well, Tom and his Tom and his family are doing a, a fantastic job of of really carrying on the Zig Ziglar legacy. Was there a particular book that was the most influential for you? You know, I know we've got a lot of books on our shelves, but is there one in particular that you can point to and say this book really was the most influential for me? Well, when I first started in sales. It was uh, Tom Hopkins, How to Master the Art of Selling, and Zig's books, See You at the Top, and Secrets of Closing the Sale. I mean, those were my three books, <laughs> you know, that were just were so impactful for me. But, uh, you know, I've got a huge library of books, and and I just, uh, so many of them I love, and I've learned so much from in, in different areas. And so I, I don't know if there's any one that I would look at today as being the book but there's so many of them that have had such a profound, profound impact in my life. So speaking of books, what do you think the principles or elements of being a good writer are now that you're writing books yourself? Well, in the Go-Giver series, I'd say one of the main principles is teaming up with John David Mann <laughs> because he's an amazing storyteller and writer. I'm much more of a how-to person. You know, my, my first book was uh, Endless Referrals, Network Your Everyday Contacts into Sales. That is a how-to book. And uh, some of the other books I've had, how-to books. This was the, the Go-Giver series was the first parable one. And John has been the, definitely the lead writer and the storyteller. And so we collaborate on this and it's a great collaboration because he's so fantastic to work with. As far as writing itself, I mean, I really think it comes down to nothing more than you have an idea and you really, really want to share that idea. You feel it brings some value to the marketplace and you simply start putting it down. So he's the storyteller and you're the how-to guy. He's also great with how-to because he, you know, he was a, also a very uh, successful entrepreneur. So I don't want to make it seem as though he's just, for, no, I mean, he's, he's also how-to. But I'm just saying that when it comes to the actual, the, you know, the verbiage and the, you know, the storytelling aspect, that is really John. He's the one that's uh, the word slayer. Yeah, he makes it happen. <laughs> yeah, he makes it sing. <laughs> exactly. Where'd you guys meet? Uh, he was the editor in chief of a magazine I was writing for. I would I would submit these monthly uh, articles, and I'd get a. And I had not met him personally at the time. Uh, it was just just online, and he'd always write back with the the corrections, which is by the way a lot a lot better than a lot of editors do at magazines, where they just you know they basically just take your stuff and they rewrite some of it, and you never know what's gonna happen. But he would always send me back a really nice note and say, "Hey, I made this change here, and I made this change here, and is this okay? And is that okay?" And the running joke was every month I'd write back saying, "Not only is it okay, you write my stuff better than I write my stuff." <laughs> Fantastic. All right. So let's talk a little bit about sales um, because I know that you're great at it. And let's face it, you know, what isn't sales? Everything is sales, right? Exactly. So mm -hmm. when it comes to sales, what do you think that people pay too little attention to? And what do you think they pay too much attention to? Well, I think most people in sales pay too little attention to what is going on in the mind of the prospective customer or client, and they pay much too much attention to the product or the service. When you think about it, selling is nothing more than discovering what the other person needs, wants, and desires, and helping them to get it. That's what it is. As simple as that. It, it really is. 
So the only way we will we can know is by asking questions and listening, listening with our whole being, or as we like to say, listening with the back of our neck, okay, our, putting our whole being into listening in order to really, really discover this person's needs, wants, and desires. What happens a lot of times is we all come from different belief systems. What is, you know, what is a belief? A belief is a subjective truth, right? It's the truth as we understand the truth to be which means it may be the truth or it might just be our truth. But we see the world through our own set of beliefs, our belief system. And we tend to assume as human beings that other people also see the world basically the same way we see it, which makes sense. I mean, what, what else do we know, right? Mm-hmm. And this is why a lot of times when you'll hear a salesperson saying, well, you know, what I really like about this product is the so-and-so, so-and-so. But that doesn't mean the other person likes that same thing. You know, I remember learning from a, a mentor of mine. His name was Harry Brown. And he once said that, that although we're all individuals, uh, there are three basic principles that if you understand this, it's, it's, he called three basic principles of human nature. And if we understand this, we are always in a position to succeed and help others do it as, as we succeed. And he said the first principle is understanding that everyone seeks happiness. Happiness defined as the mental feeling of well-being. Number two is happiness is relative. We all experience happiness differently. Thus, we place certain values on certain things. What brings happiness to one person might be meaningless to someone else. Example, if I may, if I may provide one. Of course. Let's say someone has a uh, business in which they're recruiting people in to build a business, not only use the great products and services, but to actually build a business. And this person starts talking about all the benefits of building a business. And they say, oh, well, if you do this, you'll get to travel the world. You'll get to go everywhere. You'll stay in the finest places. You'll be on airplanes all the time, sitting first class. You'll be there. And they're going on and on. But they didn't ask the question of this person, how do you feel about travel? <laughs> right. Do you want to be sitting on an airplane? Exactly. But because we think, well, we think everybody likes to travel. Who wouldn't? Well, you know what? I can tell you, I, you know, I'm a speaker. I speak all over the place. I've cut back on my speaking because as I get older, I don't want to travel. I make this point because in sales, this is so very important. We are not our customer and we all seek happiness and put different values on what makes us happy in different ways. So that's so those are the first two. Everyone seeks happiness and happiness is relative. Now the third one is what ties it in together and that is resources are limited. Now that's not to be confused with a lack mentality. In, indeed, our, we live in a totally abundant society. There's enough for everyone. However, individually, we all have limitations in certain areas. We all have a limited amount of time a limited amount of energy, a limited amount of uh, money, a limited amount of knowledge. So what happens is people constantly are making choices, both consciously and unconsciously. Throughout the day, we're making choices, and each and every one of these choices is based on whether we believe this particular thing will bring us closer to happiness based on how we value happiness and within the constraints 
that we believe we have to work with. So when you approach sales that way, you know your job is to focus totally, absolutely laser-like on this person and first discover their wants, needs, and desires. And only then are you in a position to be able to connect the benefits of your product or service with what they need, want, or desire. Do you think that that people, when they're doing, we'll call it a sales presentation just for illustration purposes, do you think that when they're in that environment that they're nervous, they're, they're focused on making the sale, they're maybe sometimes asking questions for people? Like I enjoy asking questions, but not a lot of people do. And do you think that, you know, maybe for some people, they're, they just feel uncomfortable asking questions, even though that's what they need to do in order to find out, to use the example of travel, do they even really like to travel? Right, exactly. Imagine this person who might love that business, but thinks, oh, I have to travel, <laughs> you know, in order to do it. And so you, you, could, you could be, have an opportunity that someone might absolutely love. They just don't want to have to travel. So they oh, no. <laughs> Such a great point. The power of a question, right? So in answer to your question, I, you know, I think it depends on the person. I think mainly it's a skill set. I think asking questions is a skill set. And when you know the correct questions to ask, uh, you feel more confident. I think like anything else, you know, you're training those muscles to be able to do that, which is why training is so important, why following a system is so important, and why learning from people who've already been there, people like yourself, people who you study, what have you, and you learn what are the, what are the questions to ask. And you, you practice it and you keep practicing until you're very comfortable with it. And I guess the other side is listening, right? Well, and that's the key because we sometimes listen just to hear an answer so that we can know how to come back, right? <laughs> or we listen just to get enough that we can say to this person, you know, that we can say, oh, we listened, or, you know, to, that this person now feels listened to. No, uh, listening's a skill. Listening is definitely a skill. And it's something we need to understand that there's a real purpose for. And the purpose for listening is to understand. A principle number two in the, you know, in the Go-Giver Influencer, we talked about stepping to the other person's shoes. But that's not always so easy, Rob. Why? Because most of us have different sized feet. And this goes back to belief systems. We don't necessarily know what this other person believes. Well, we definitely don't. We probably don't, depending, you know, assuming we don't have a relationship with this person already, we don't know their background or their beliefs or what have you. So we need to ask those questions and listen in order to first understand. So maybe you can walk us through some of the questions that people can ask maybe themselves about how to focus their efforts more on giving people high value and not just low price. You know, I know the strategy, you've often been quoted as saying the strategy works for Walmart, but not for the rest of us. Maybe you can give us a little color. <laughs> yeah, well, it's understanding the difference between price and value, which we talk about in the, the original uh, book in the series. Price is a dollar figure. It's a dollar amount. It's finite. It is what it is. Value, on the other hand, is the relative worth or desirability of a thing, of something to the end user or beholder. In other words, what is it about this thing, this product, service, concept, opportunity, idea, what have you, that brings so much worth or value to someone that they will willingly exchange their money or their time or their energy or what have you uh, for this, this value. And if a prospective customer doesn't see in, in their mind a 
significant difference between any two or more products or services, they're always going to go with who has the lowest price. I mean, that's just very natural. And so if you're selling on price, you're playing a very dangerous game. When you sell on price, you're a commodity. When you sell on value, you're a resource. It's a losing proposition. It is for everyone, actually. And so, including the client who is not serviced well. And if, of course, if you go out of business from charging too low a prices, uh, you're not there to service them afterwards. So, uh, yeah, you want to sell on high value rather than low price. So how do you do that? How do you separate yourself from others when we live in a, at this point, a commodity based world? Well, you've got to be that additional value. How? Well, there are probably hundreds of ways to communicate that additional value, but they tend to come down to five what we call elements of value. And they are excellence, consistency, attention, empathy, and appreciation. And to the degree that we can communicate one or more, hopefully all five of those elements, uh, we as well as those on our team, uh, that's the degree to which we will take price out of the equation and be the go-to person. Got it. Got it. All right. I want to talk about your new book, The Go-Giver Influencer. And I have two weird questions to ask you before we get into it. (laughs) So the first question, and for those of you listening, bear with me, but these are things I just can't get out of my head. And that is, there's a, I don't know what the word is, maybe an emblem or an insignia or an image on the front of the book and it's been driving me crazy. I don't know what the significance is, and I don't know what it is. So for those people that are going to get the book, now that I've planted this in their subconscious, what is it? It's a graphic of Hermes, or Mercury, depending if you go with the Latin or the Greek. The publisher came up with this for the first Go-Giver book, and we have it on on all of them. Uh, And he was the, I guess, the god of uh, gifts and delivery and so forth. So I guess it's the, the theme of, you know, giving, delivering, and so forth. That's actually really cool. And and he looks cool. So He does look cool. And then now let's go a little deeper. Let's talk about it. There are two characters that are at odds with each other. And the reason why this is a big deal that they're at odds with each other is because they're in a career make or break situation. So what are the key ingredients for people to find common ground with each other when it seems like it is totally impossible to find common ground? Yeah, that's a great question. And the interesting thing about this was that Jillian and Jackson each had exactly what the other wanted. So you would think in the business sense, this would have been a marriage made in heaven. And yet every conversation seemed to bring them further apart than when they started. And, they, and each one couldn't, just couldn't understand why. And the first part was that they were not even trying to understand the other person, right? Uh, first, they both, n- neither of them were really in control of their emotions. They both wanted this so bad. And we say the first, the, you know, the first secret or law or principle, what have you, is to, con- is to master your emotions, control your emotions. And uh, this is really where it all begins, because it's only when we can control our emotions that we're even in a position to be able to take a potentially negative situation or person and turn it into a win for everyone involved. But we know this as human beings, and yet how often do we allow someone, whether it's a prospective customer, whether it's a family member, whether it's a friend, whether it's someone in a social situation, whether it's someone at the office, to say or do something that 
pushes our buttons and we allow ourselves to become upset, frustrated, angry, right? You know, I think the reason why this happens so often is, well, we're human beings and we're emotional creatures. It's how we're, we're built. We'd like to think we're logical, and to a certain extent we are, but we're pretty emotion-based. We make major decisions based on emotion, and we back up those decisions with logic. We rationalize, which if you break up the word rationalize, it simply means we tell ourselves rational lies. Mm. And we do this to justify doing that thing that we, or acting in a certain way that we know we shouldn't have done, but it's easier to not blame ourselves. This is where we have to really kind of get in control of and master our emotions. But here, this is important, Rob, because this can easily be misunderstood. We're not suggesting anyone become an unemotional robot uh, or that you should try to deny your emotions. Uh, first of all, that wouldn't make sense. It, that, trying to deny our emotions wouldn't be logical, right? Because we're human beings. We're emotion-based creatures. But the other thing is there's no need to have to do that. Emotions are a wonderful part of life. They bring us joy. They make life worth living. No, we're just saying that you need to master your emotions as opposed to your emotions mastering you. Or as one of my great friends and mentors, Dandi Skumachi, puts it, by all means, take your emotions along for the ride, but make sure you are driving the car. Got it. Got it. And, and, and by the way, Dandi Skumachi is maybe the perfect, most best name ever. Is that not a great name? <laughs> so you've talked about the eight words that will move people to your side of an issue. Can you add some color there? What are the eight words that are going to help us? We use all five aspects of the, um, you know, of our genuine influence. And the first is, again, controlling our emotions. Second, which we've been discussed, is put yourself in the other person's shoes. Try to understand to the best of your ability where they're coming from. Uh, the third is, is to set the frame. And this is so very important, setting the frame, because the, a frame is simply the foundation from which everything else evolves. Uh, and when dealing with people, the person who sets the frame is really the person who controls the outcome. We're setting the frame of two allies, as opposed to what do you often see in a sales situation? Adversaries, right? So when we create that frame as we did, now it's a whole different, it's a whole different story. Uh, and that's why the setting the frame or resetting, so sometimes someone else comes to you in a negative frame and we've got to be able to, to reset that. And then uh, number four was communicating with tact and empathy. My dad, who we talked about earlier, he has always defined tact as the language of strength. And I've always thought that was such a great definition because really what is tact when you think of it? It allows you to, if I may use the words, correct or critique or even constructively criticize. Not that we ever want to do any of those things, but we're talking about the real world, not a fake fantasy world. And sometimes we need to be able to share with someone a different way, a better way of thinking about or handling a situation. So Tact allows us to do this in such a way that the other person, rather than feeling defensive toward us and resistant to our ideas, they are open to us and more receptive of our ideas. So let's go back to this um, the situation, the eight key words uh, that will practically always move someone to your side of the issue. 
and this is once you have you've you've been polite, you've been patient, you've got, done, gone through those other steps, and the person, let's say, uh, has a, is maybe a customer service person who has not gone out of their way to do what you need or, or whatever the situation is. Here are the eight key words. If you can't do it, I'll definitely understand. If you can't do it, I'll definitely understand. What you've done with those words is you've basically said to this person, you know, while I believe you can, I also want you to know that you as a person, as a human being, are more important than the outcome. And this person, you know, most people want to be helpful, and, but they don't want to be talked down to. Uh, they they want to be respected. And so when you say, if you can't do it, I'll definitely understand. Now, what you can do is you can pause a few moments after you say that and follow that up with, if you could, I'd certainly appreciate it. Boom. I am totally going to call the cable company today and I'm going to say, if you can't do it, I definitely understand. I have had people with their cable, talk to me about their cable companies and their <laughs> phone bills and they have utilized this. But remember, it gets set up with the, the, it, with the, the frame being established, one of where you're in control of your emotions, where you're, you're, you're considering their side of, you know, that we're in, in tact and empathy and all the different things we have to do. But yeah, one, but it really takes a very, very short period of time. To, to learn this. And I know, yeah, I know you anyway, you, you, you do this stuff naturally. This is fantastic. Okay. So let's move on to an area that you talked about earlier, um, that I just let pass by, but I want to drill in a bit. And that is listening with the back of your neck. How do you listen with your, the back of your neck and you describe what it is and how people can use that strategy in their life? Yeah, and I learned this from John David Mann, my co-author. He wrote that into the thing, and he said, what do you think of this idea? I said, I love it. Uh, and I asked him where he learned it. And, uh, apparently, when John was a little kid, he took martial arts, and it was something that the sensei taught them, uh, not to listen with the back of your neck, but to to operate from the back of your neck, to do everything with the back of your neck. In other words, what he's saying is, rather than in this case just listening, listening with your ears, which can be very surface, you actually you actually, while you're focusing on the person, you're doing it from that area in the back of your, your neck. Your entire being, in other words, is brought into this. And as you do this, you'll find your ability to listen just goes through the roof. But, but here's, the other, here's the best part of it. The other person will feel more listened to because they can see, they can sense that you are really listening. All right, tonight we're going out for Italian for date night, so I'm going to listen with the back of my neck and a glass of Chianti. Ah, awesome. So for people that are just starting out, a lot of the 20-somethings now, it seems like everywhere I look, somebody's got an iPhone in their hand and they're, you know, they're on Instagram, they're on Instagram stories, and everybody wants to be an influencer now, right? What would some good goals be and what would some bad goals be for somebody that says, you know, I want to be an Instagram influencer? Well, I think the medium is, is itself or the social platform is, is simply an extension of who we are. So while there are certainly strategies that would apply to Instagram that might not apply to Twitter or Facebook or LinkedIn or tactics or whatever, I think it always goes back to who the person is. Aunt Ellen, in one of our stories, uh, it, this was in the Go-Giver Leader, I think, had said to Ben that, that what you have to give, you offer least of all through what you say, although what you say is certainly important. 
more important is, is what you do, but most important is who you are, which of course is where character comes into play. I think that's really what it's all about, Rob. It's, it's who you are. Who are you who are, who's the one who's communicating with others? The strategies, the tactics, they can always be learned uh, regardless of the, there are people who specialize in doing that. But are you going on there when you're on Instagram, when you're on Twitter, when you're on, are, are you operating from a perspective that says, my goal right here is to bring value to others, to those people I'm communicating with? It's such a good answer because I, I don't know how deep in this world you are, but there are so many people that are renting houses that are not their own, renting Lamborghinis for the day that are not their own and crafting this faux vision of who they are. And you're right. When you operate through that lens, you're not you, you're not, your intention isn't there. So therefore, you're not serving, therefore, you're not influencing. Did I get that right? Uh, it is, and it's not sustainable. I mean, you know, you can sometimes fool people for a little while, but it's it's really hard, especially these days. It's harder and harder uh, to keep up a charade, <laughs> and good, and, which is good. That's one of the good things about social media. Yeah, for sure. The transparency is there. You know, people assume that you hit home runs all the time. You know, they, they would assume wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Can you walk us through maybe uh, some of the darker times that you've had building your career as an author and what you were able to do to get yourself out of it? Yeah, well, I'll, so I'll, I'll tell you one thing that, that was, you know, that was kind of yucky. And then another thing that was, but it's kind of funny. The first one was back when I was in, it, it was back in the mid to late nineties and I'd been speaking for seven or eight years and, and really had built up a really good speaking business. And this is when, right about this time that the internet really started to come into its own. Technology was starting to really affect the way we were doing business, and it was affecting the speaking business. Well, I'm one of these people, I really don't like change. Now, I know that is not the politically correct thing to say in the personal development world, right? I mean, how often are we done? Embrace change! It's the only thing that's done, and winners change, and you know, the whole thing, right? I, I get it, but I gotta tell you, I hate change. Yep. I, I, I like to get into a thing of doing a certain way. I like to figure it out and I like to have it going and, and it was going. And then this happened. And I said, you know what? I've already got a, a big enough business. My clients will, you know, I got a lot of little cocky about that. Just didn't think I needed to, to adapt. And my business just tanked. And I was back to basically starting at square one. By the way, I was intimidated by the technology because I'm really not, naturally good with that stuff. And I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to change. But here's the thing. It doesn't really matter if you hate change. It doesn't matter if you don't want to change. You got to do it anyway, if you want to succeed, <laughs> you know, again, depending upon what it is. And I certainly was not big enough to be that independent. And, uh, Fortunately, I, you know, I, I have a business partner who she's wonderful with technology and, and most people think I'm great with it because I'm on all the social media or not all, but several of the social media platforms. I utilize technology as a big part of my business. But what I did is I was able to create the situation of the, create the environment where, uh, where technology would be a friendly thing for me because I have a brilliant business partner who, who understands that. 
The other thing that happened, which was a big mistake, and this ends up being kind of funny, even though it wasn't at the time. After the success of The Go-Giver, and then Go-Giver, Go-Givers Sell More, which wasn't a parable, that was a uh, application-based book, the publisher wanted another book. Okay, and John and I thought, great. So we come up with a title that we just thought was really it. And the, the title of the book was, It's Not About You. And we thought people who are fans of The Go-Giver will love this title because, you know, it, it's sort of the, the third law. The law of influence was your influence is determined by how abundantly you place other people's interests first. And so we, we get the book out there. We write the story. And, you know, I mean, I think this story was as good as The Go-Giver. And it tanked. I mean, this thing just didn't sell. And for about three years, we were doing everything we could to figure out why this thing didn't sell. And finally, I'm talking to someone who says, well, Bob, you know, I think it, I really think the title just didn't connect. And I'm thinking, how could it not have come, blah, 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 you know, what have you. He said, well, think about it. He said, if it's not about me, why would I want to buy it? Okay, well, that, that actually kind of hit me right between the eyes. That's true, okay. But there was one other thing, too, and this we kind of figured out uh, afterwards. The One of the reasons The Go-Giver sold so well and continues to is because people buy it as gift books for others. You can give, a, give someone a gift book that says The Go-Giver, and they feel great about it. But you can't give someone a book that says It's Not About You without them thinking, Whoa, what's what's going on here? Is there something wrong with me? You know, it's like giving wow. someone a bottle of Scope mouthwash, right? <laughs> and so, of course, people didn't give that as a gift. How do you fix it? Well, we did something that is very seldom done, and this is from having a great, great publisher. We asked if we could change the title, which is, by the way, almost unheard of, especially these days uh, with so many books selling online because of the, the confusion in the marketplace. But we said, you know, we know we have a, a good book, uh, but the title was the problem. But they did. And this book has sold wonderfully well since then. We call it The Go-Giver Leader. We changed it from It's Not About You to The Go-Giver Leader. So now it's, it's obviously part of The Go-Giver brand. And you can give a book to someone that says, the go-giver leader, and they feel uh, encouraged and complimented, not insulted. Don't judge a book by its title. And, uh, and yet, what did exactly Shakespeare what say? What's in the name? <laughs> Love that. Okay, so this show is uh, is about uh, working hard and playing hard. And I want to move on to the play hard section of the show, which really I define as anything outside of work. It's kind of the anti-Gary V. You know, Gary V is crush it, crush it, crush it, and let's all just, you know, work until we drop dead. We spend so much time on work and not a lot of time on play. So I want to talk to you a little bit about play in your life. And I recognize that the more I do this, and the more I ask these questions, the more I realize that a lot of the hard-charging entrepreneurs that I interview are probably a little weak in this area. So I want to ask a couple of questions on it and see what, uh, what hits you. If you had a, uh, a magic wand, describe what play hard would look like for you. You know, for me, I, this is going to be so disappointing to you. I would just be at Dunkin' Donuts drinking coffee and reading books. And just not, not, uh, oh, I'm going to be wild and crazy. Not highlighting and underlining and taking notes, just enjoying it. 
You know what? That's that's not underwhelming for me. I, actually, the thought of being able to sit in the Dunkin' Donuts and read the 50 books that I haven't read that's sitting on my shelf. Exactly. Because I have a three-year-old now, <laughs> actually sounds really good. And that's the point of the show, that it's not about spraying champagne in Saint-Tropez, which is a good time. You should try it once or twice. But it's more about what is it for you that's not work? And I loved, actually, I love that answer. What about if you had all the time and the money in the world to pursue a hobby or a recreational activity? What would it be and why? Oh, I'd buy the Miami Marlins. Wow. Oh, okay. yeah. You really are yeah. a baseball fan. Yeah, that that would be fun for me. That that would be fun. I'd like to do it so that I, I didn't have to worry uh, about making it really profitable or anything because I what do I know about running a baseball team? But, but I, it would be very enjoyable. That would be a, yeah. What about the one thing that you've always wanted to learn but you haven't gotten around to yet? Oh, well, that's an interesting one because I've always been on the cusp of of speaking Spanish, and I love the Spanish language, and I took it in high school growing up in Massachusetts. I knew many people from Puerto Rico, uh, down here in Florida, many people from Cuba. So I've uh, and I so I've always practiced, and so but I never never got to that point where I could speak it fluently. So about a year ago, I I got the Pimsleur course, which is an audio course that you listen to in the car. And it's actually very effective. And there are hundreds and hundreds of CDs you go through. I mean, it's a long course. And finally, about a month ago, I completed the course. And and, you know, and I watch a lot of Spanish television and I've gotten so much better with it. Very, actually very excited about that. Let me tell you what's so cool about that. Um, I, too, am a Pimsleur fan. I just bought the Italian Pimsleur series, and I'm currently doing it in my car. Awesome. Yeah. The benefit of having Little Italy here in Atlanta. So <laughs> I am going to uh, spend a month next year, the month of April in Florence, Italy, to Good for you. To learn. Good for so, you. That is super exciting. Okay, so we're going to go into some social media questions, and we're going to wrap up with a couple of rapid-fire questions. And I uh, put a tweet out to uh, social media, to Twitter. I guess that's what a tweet is. And I asked people what questions they want to ask you. And I have three responses. One of them is at uh, mompreneur, and she said, when can I get your new book? Aww. It is coming out April 10th. It can be pre-ordered. And then I guess they send it that day or something, or, or I don't know if they send it early so it arrives that day, you know, on uh, Amazon or whatever. But if you go to The Go-Giver, without the hyphen, thegogiver.com, and on the homepage, on the right-hand side, there's that purple uh, cover, and just click on that, and you can uh, and you can pre-order if you'd like. You can also get the first two chapters just to... Um, uh, see if you like it first. Love it. At carguy632 wants to know, how do two people write a book together? That's a great question. And I, I think it was very, in, in this case, it's easier because when when one of the authors is a much, much better writer than the other, it, it's a lot easier. <laughs> so 
John is a pleasure. It really is a, a joy to work with. Uh, the only time I've ever worked with another writer was on a, a book I did a long time ago. Uh, I actually self-published that one, and I, I hired this person to co-author with me. And she was also great to work with. Uh, but again, I think it's two people that have to have a, a respect for each other. They have to have congruent values in terms of how they do things and in terms of, of what they're looking to accomplish in the book through the story or through the the writing, whether it's how to or, or a, a parable or whatever. And then you have to, you know, kind of define the terms and, and look at how you would work best with one another. But I, you know, I know many people who've done it very successfully and others who have had war stories about it. Yeah, I can only imagine it's uh, it, it either works or it doesn't. At uh, Mary Indiana wants to know what is the most interesting, strange or weird story that you had happen to you when you met a fan at a speaking event? I think it's more after the event where the person kind of really wanted there to be a personal relationship uh, and maybe made contact a few times, maybe too many that weren't appropriate. (laughs) (laughs) Am I being tactful the way I'm saying that? You're doing a great job, but we are all reading between those lines. (laughs) That's awesome. All right, so let's move into our rapid fire round as we wrap up. What would your, and answer these as quickly or as slowly as you would like your choice, but it's kind of like first thing that comes to your mind. What would your friends say is one of your superpowers? Oh, a highly developed sense of empathy. What's one thing you're afraid of right now? Wow. Well, okay. I, I mean, I would say the, um, the book, not, not, uh, finding a market, you know, this new book, not being successful in terms of sales, not only because it happens to be really the representative of my purpose on earth. I believe that this information is what I was supposed to get out there, but also there's other people such as the publisher who I love and I want them to do well from this book and so forth. So yeah, I'd say if there's anything that, that would nag at me a little bit, it would be the fear of it, of the book, not selling well. Beautiful, honest answer. What's the one thing that you want to get better at? I would say listening and being able to understand. Sure. All right. And what is the one app on your phone that you can't live without? Oh, I'd say the Twitter app. I don't, I don't actually tweet from the phone. Okay. I'm, I, I'm always at my computer either here or at the hotel to do that, but I'll check the tweets when I'm on the road constantly to see what's going on there. Okay, last question. If you had to give a TED Talk on nothing that you're known for or nothing that you speak about, and it could be on anything that you like to do or anything that you have a passion for, anything else at all, what would it be? Easy. That would be on the beauty and the blessing of free market capitalism and helping people to understand why true capitalism, not to be confused with cronyism, True free market capitalism is the biggest boon to humanity that we've ever had and why we should be all learning about it as opposed to the movement towards socialism and other forms of economics that are that some have good intent, but that are so, so counterproductive to people's overall well-being and happiness. What a perfect answer and a great way to finish. Uh, I know we went over our allotted time and I thank you so much for that. Is there any final words, suggestions, or maybe an ask for the people that are listening? No, I, I just so appreciate you and Kimberly and I love the mission you're on and the work you're doing and the value you bring to others. And I just wish for everyone listening the very best of success. Bob, thank you so much. Thank you. 
All right. Thanks for listening. If you love this episode and you know someone that needs some help in either stepping up their work hard game or their play hard game, it would mean the world to me if you shared this podcast with them to help me get this movement out there. So if you like what you heard, head on over to iTunes, take 30 seconds and leave me a five-star review and I will be forever grateful. So until the next episode, excuses are over. It's time to live.